This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're very fortunate to be joined by Gary Cohn, President and Chief Operating Officer of Goldman Sachs. Gary, welcome to the program. Jake, thank you so much for having me. So, Gary, the story in the markets this year at the start has been the surge in volatility. You were in Davos at the World Economic Forum, a lot of talk about the volatility markets. What was top of mind for the clients you spoke to? What are their biggest concerns as we start 2016? Overall, there were four major concerns in Davos this year. Number one, China. What was going on in China? China economic growth. Number two, commodities what's going on with commodity prices, oil market in particular. Have and, we seen the bottom? Right, have we seen go? the bottom? What is the oil market telling us? Is the oil market predicting a global recession? I you know, vehemently argue that the oil market is not predicting a recession. Number three was basically US interest rates or US monetary policy. What is the Fed going to do? What is the Fed doing? How much divergence will we see? Exactly. We're, are we in a tightening cycle in the United States? The Fed at the time of Davos so a couple weeks ago was still broadcasting that they were in a tightening cycle. Now it's not as clear as they're in a tightening cycle, especially with Bank of Japan, what they've done recently. And number four, obviously, the U.S. elections is of acute interest to people all over the world. So everyone wanted an American view of what was going on in the U.S. election Maybe it looks cycle. a little hazy or fuzzy from afar or yeah, even up it, close. It does. Yeah. And the fifth issue, to the extent there's a fifth issue, and I think this is more an issue from my perspective than an issue at Davos, it was interesting to me to hear the overwhelming concern from the Europeans about Brexit and what's going on with the EU and how unstable the EU is with the potential exit of Britain and the immigration issue that's going on in Europe. Yeah, and the threat it poses to governments there. Yeah. yeah. Gary, you mentioned China's been one of the main sources of the recent surge in volatility. It really has investors on edge. Goldman Sachs has been bullish on China for a long time now. Has any of the recent turmoil in the country affected that long-term view and your view on China's near-term outlook? So I think our long-term view on China has not changed at all. And in fact, our short-term view is somewhat intact as well. The points that I would make on China, and look, I think I was lucky enough to be on one of the real important panels in Davos that discussed the whole China issue. You know, I had Christine Lagarde, the head of the IMF World Bank on the panel, the chairman of the ICBC Bank, the head of the Chinese stock regulator, as well as Ray Dalio and one other Chinese corporate on the panel. We discussed what was going on in China. How I and we look at China is relatively simple and in some respects, very obvious. You know, I think the big mistake that people are making in China is they're not listening to what the Chinese have been telling you for the last 30 years. You know, if you go back over the last three decades, the Chinese talked about building out China, building out mega cities, creating cities. When you create cities, you have to build enormous amount of infrastructure. You have to build highways, trains, airports, office buildings, residential buildings. When you're doing that, you've got government spending. When government Which spend- is reasonably predictable. It's very controllable. Reasonably stable. And you see it. You see highways being built. You see office buildings being built. You see the steel being imported. You see all the natural resources. You see the ships coming into the harbor. So when China was going through that, they were able to perpetually grow their economy 
at 10 plus percent year after year after year. And they told you they were gonna build these cities. What they also told you is after they built the cities, they were gonna inhabit the cities. They literally moved hundreds of millions of people from rural China to urban China, to these mega cities. Once you move people to the cities, you stop becoming government stimulus driven and you become consumer driven. What do consumers do? Consumers spend, and we call it consumer discretionary spending. Not a subject to government control. You can't force them to buy the dishwasher or the air conditioner or the car. Correct, so we can't force consumers to spend. So the big question is, is the consumer spending in China? And I would answer that question, yes, the Chinese are learning to be consumers. It's not growing at double digit rates, but we are seeing consumption. So if you look at gasoline and coffee demand in China, it grew 10% last year. That's consumers buying cars, buying coffee makers, living like a city dweller. And that's actually happening. So we do believe this is happening, but that will grow an economy somewhere between five and 7%, we believe. Now, what's interesting is when the Chinese government was building but out- But it's not as predictable. And not as predictable. And sentiment matters. Sentiment matters. And a third point that I think really matters, when the Chinese started building out their infrastructure or investing in CapEx, they started from a low economic base. Today, when you look at the growth that we're creating, even at 7% GDP, we're talking about over a $10 trillion economy a year. So the 7% growth today is creating more global notional GDP than the 12% growth was 10 years ago. And shifting the composition of exports and imports and really the balance of trade. Yeah, all the things that naturally happen when you're going through a domestic-driven economy. According to a recent report, Gary, by Goldman Sachs' Charmin Mosavar Romani, China accounts for just 2.3% of the GDP of both developed and emerging economies. Not a huge number by any means. So are investors overreacting to the slowdown in China? And what impact do you think a slower-growing China will have on the global economy? So it's my view that the world is a bit overreacting to what's going on in China. I'm not in denial that China is slowing down, that China's in the five to 6% growth range, but it's still a lot of global GDP. I'm also very much a realist of what's going on in commodity prices. Now, I think that's a whole supply demand scenario and not a scenario of contracting demand. So when you look at China today and what it means for the global economy, I think China is much more of a domestic isolated economy than it has been for a long period of time. Historically, we looked at China as being a very important part of the global trade balance. It doesn't really affect our exports that much, and China's economy isn't really that dependent on what's going on in other parts of the world. They, in many respects, over this last 30 years or three decades of building infrastructure, have become very much self-sufficient on building and manufacturing for themselves what they need to support their economy. On the flip side, they do export some products, but they're a lot less dependent on the rest of the world than the world thinks they are. So the transition of China away from a more capital-intensive, investment-led economy may not be as big a deal if the consumer takes up for developed economies, but how about for the commodity exporting countries? What does it mean for them? We've clearly seen the commodity export countries suffer and suffer quite dramatically. 
especially the commodity export countries that are not at all diversified in what they do. So Brazil is a country right now that one of their main issues is their lack of ability to export a lot of natural resources. And we're seeing other countries that are sharing in the same issues that a country like Brazil is. So Gary, you said earlier, you don't believe the falling oil prices are signaling a dramatic drop off in demand and a recession. So what are the biggest factors in the decline of oil prices? And is it a sign that global growth is at least slowing? So I don't think it has anything to do with global growth. I think it has to do with oversupply, pure fundamentals. You know, the great thing about the commodity market and specifically the oil market is it comes down to fundamentals. We are in a situation today where we are producing about a million and a half barrels more oil every day than we're consuming and consumption has not gone down. In fact, fourth quarter year over year consumption was up about one, 1 1.1%. Globally. Globally. Yeah. So we're not destroying demand. What we are is we're creating more and more product. How are we doing that? We're doing it through technology, we're doing it through fracking, we're doing it through new countries getting access to marketplaces that didn't have access. We're doing it because certain countries need to export more and more oil today at the lower price than they did at the higher price because their economy the revenue. is yeah. dependent on certain amount of dollar revenue. So we're getting some Maybe irrational behavior, maybe very rational behavior from those countries that in their budget rational need... Rational in the micro. Yeah. yeah. Ne they irrational need the revenue. The they need yeah. the dollar-based revenue. So we've seen the supply of oil grow as the price of oil has come down. And remember, the dollar has strengthened as well against other currencies, which has also had an effect on the price of oil going down. So to me, the whole issue here is we've got to get the supply-demand balance right. And what we're going through now in the oil market is literally that extra million and a half barrels that's produced every day has to go somewhere. It goes into storage. So initially you put it into the really easy to store locations and it does not dislocate the market. We're so far down this chain that we filled up all the easy storage locations. So in order to make the hard to get to or less easy storage locations work, you have to price more spread into the market to make those storage locations work. By that I mean the front end of the oil market gets lower and lower, the back end stays relatively where it is, and financiers or traders can buy the spot oil, they can store it, they can sell so, the forwards, and they can have their transaction cost covered and they can put on basically a risk-free transaction. And that's what's going on in the market is we're pricing in the more difficult locations to store oil in. And as we continue to price in those more difficult locations, the front end of oil will get cheaper and cheaper. And at some point, we will force oil to be shut in or stop being produced because the dollar break-even cost of producing that marginal barrel will be below the cost that they can sell that barrel. We think that's going to happen in the next couple you Six know, months, nine months, yeah, even I would shorter. say next couple quarters is what I was going to yeah. say. No one knows precisely. We won't even know when it's happened. And, we'll know six months is, after it happened. And demand is still a factor, whether it's growing right. or not, how quickly. But, you know, the best guess scenario is we will go through refinery maintenance turnaround cycles in the United States 
in the early spring here and we get through the refinery turnaround cycles and we go from a heating oil market to a gasoline market, once we get back into that gasoline market, we think that we will have sort of dealt with the oversupply problem. So we're talking about, you know, March, April, May, somewhere in that period. So Gary, a lot of banks, including Goldman, have revised their view on the impact of lower oil prices on the consumer. Even Jan Hatzius, uh, Goldman's chief economist, now expects growth of about zero despite lower oil prices. So why haven't those lower oil prices, gasoline prices, really translated into better growth for the U.S.? So look, Jake, initially the reduced oil price is a huge progressive windfall tax decrease. But remember, we now have had a declining oil price for a year and a half or almost two years. In the last year or so, we've been down in this below $40, 45 to $30 range. So now we're trading in this smaller range and the impact is Incremental just $10, impact is $10 is small, yeah. versus when we came from $150 down to $40. That impact was a couple of years ago when we were seeing the U.S. economy doing better, the job creation doing better, and the U.S. economy growing at a more rapid pace than we are forecasting growth right now. That said, the U.S. consumer has had this windfall of more disposable income in their pocket from the lower oil price to the extent they haven't rebudgeted themselves from the lower oil price and their wages have stayed up. And basically the data would tell you that wages have stayed up, they haven't declined. And so when people are, are budgeting and they, they end up with the extra money, what we've seen recently is the U.S. consumer has been acting a little differently than they did five to 10 years ago. Five to 10 years ago, the U.S. consumer, if they had 10 extra dollars in their pocket at the end of the week, they would go out and spend 12, assuming they'd have 10 extra dollars next week, but they had available credit, they would go pre-spend some of next week's savings. But What's that consumer credit pipeline has sort of dried up a bit. Exactly. With the retrenchment in consumer credit and the much higher standards and less availability of consumer credit, we've seen consumer behavior change pretty dramatically. What we've seen in the last year is consumers at the end of the week or the month when they have extra money, they've been saving it to make bigger single purchases. So we've seen much more purchase activity in durable goods, washing machines, dryers, and we've seen the automobile market really be the windfall market. We've seen automobile sales annualized on over 18 million units in the United States. The one place- Because the bigger purchases are easier to finance. Yeah, exactly. The couple places where there still is consumer credit available because it's being provided by the direct stores that sell washing machines or different consumer credit bureaus that are unregulated is in the durable good world or in the automobile financing world. So there is still consumer credit available in those areas. You mentioned earlier uncertainty around the Fed's path. The Fed obviously raised rates for the first time in nearly a decade last December, and they've signaled more to come this year. And that's another reason many people think the market's been a little bit on edge or volatile. What do you now at this point here in February expect for monetary policy through the rest of the year? And what do you think the impact will be on the markets? My bottom line is one more rate increase at most. So you're where the market is. That's more yeah, or less where the market I, I, is? I'm where the market has moved to. I was an outlier when I first said that. But I've now only, they've come I've to been, you. I've been in the lower longer camp. I was one more rate increase because I felt like the Fed may need to make one more rate increase 
so they could change their forward guidance. I now may be feeling that they might not even have to have an increase before they change forward guidance. But we've got to go from guidance of increases that the Fed's still talking about to neutral. And we've got a long evolution here. So part of me is hoping that we don't get another increase. Part of me thinks that in reality, if you looked at the economic data, there's no way you would get another increase. But I think if you looked at the economic one, data... One percentage growth and... Yeah. If you looked at yeah. the economic data in December, I would not have had an increase in December. So, you know, one rate increase, let's say, this year. Why is the market going haywire then? Well, look, that's my opinion. That's what the market now has priced in. It right. didn't have that priced in a few weeks ago. As recently as two or three weeks ago, the Fed was still talking about four increases this year. The Fed's dots still have four increases priced in. Right. You know, financial conditions themselves, which is one of the Fed's big barometers, have tightened pretty dramatically by themselves. So, you know, when financial conditions tighten by themselves, you know, equity markets tend to go lower. And I think you've seen these major gyrations here as the market has tried to figure out what are financial conditions going to look like? What is Fed policy going to look like going forward? And there's a lack of clarity of what forward policy is going to look like. One of the things you've been talking about for a while is that one of the contributors to volatility is a lack of liquidity across all markets, yes. equity markets, but particularly in some of the debt markets. How big a role do you think diminished liquidity is having on the markets today? And what do you say to those who say that concern's overblown? People can sell and buy things when they need to. I think that it's very difficult to argue that lack of liquidity is not having an impact. I mean, we've gone through a period literally since January 1st of this year where if you just take the S&P or the Dow or whatever U.S. indice you want to look at, where we've had more intraday moves and, and close-to-close moves and percentages than I think enter period in time. If you look at the month of January, I mean, we're just having massive moves and I don't think it's massive moves as much driven by the lack of clarity on financial conditions. It's massive moves driven by if you get one or two sellers in the market, the market just goes down till you find a new clearing price. And the flip side is when you get one or two buyers in the market, the market just goes up until you find a new clearing price. And it's happening in every single market out there. It's become a real topic in our client base. Gary, you're heading to Silicon Valley for Goldman Sachs annual technology conference. A lot of people have been talking about the coming reckoning for technology companies, and they think that as private valuations of these companies fall back to earth, companies are going to need to seek additional funding through equity offerings, and they're going to be in for a big surprise. What's your take on the state of tech valuations today, and do you expect to see a strong year ahead for tech IPOs? So to me... This will be another interesting year in the technology world. Historically, over the last couple of years, there has been an abundance of capital available to the startup industry. It seems like that trend has come to a bit of a halt. And so capital today is becoming much more scarce and much more costly to get where a year or two ago, the availability of capital was very and, easy and, and valuations and, were going up because of it. Right. I still believe that many of the big companies today that produce products that you and I use, that yep. 
my kids can't live without because they've never had to live without them and they only know a life with these products are going to continue to thrive and these companies that have a fairly robust fairly proven revenue model are going to continue to thrive and do very well and they'll have options and they'll have all the options they want they've already raised a lot of money right and but to the extent they yeah. want to raise more capital and stay private they can raise more capital and stay private to the extent right. they want to go public and have a public currency, they will be able to go public. If there are companies that have an unproven business model, I think they may have more trouble funding themselves in both the private and the public markets. And that will be where the more interesting activity happens. And I think what this is gonna do is it's gonna force companies to think more and more about bottom line and revenue creation and profitability than growth, growth, growth. Historically in the Valley, the mantra has been grow at any cost. Get bigger, get bigger, get bigger. And recently in the last you know, three, four months, most if not all of the companies I've talked to, the mantra has gone to cash flow, let's be Revenue. profitable, yeah. let's make sure we're earning money and we've got a very sustainable business model. And that's just a natural evolution of an industry or a group of assets. And it's actually a positive thing that that's going on right now. So when you go out there, how do you gauge the sort of health of the innovation in the markets? Who do you see or how do you get a read on what's really going on? For me to get a good picture of what's going on in the Valley, where the pressure points are, what the pools of capital are thinking, you literally have to see all of the companies, from the public companies to the large public companies, large private companies to the small private companies. And I'll make sure I see a cross-section of all of them. Great. So let's close with a big question. There are a lot of people who are seeing signs of really a recession on the horizon. They're looking at the equity markets, they're looking at all this turmoil, and they're saying we're heading to a recession. Do you share that sentiment or do you think markets are sending a bit of a false signal? I don't think we're headed per se to recession. I think we're having an economic slowdown. And there's a difference between negative growth and slower growth. And I think we're in the slower growth part of the cycle. And what's perplexing to people and why I think there may be some overreaction is that people are concerned with all of the stimulus that we've seen around the world over the last five to seven years, depending on which country you're looking at, how could it be possible that we're not having real economic growth? And if we didn't create economic growth with all of the stimulus that we've already put in the market, how are we gonna create economic growth going forward? We've literally seen zero interest rate policy. We've seen massive central bank intervention. We've seen massive stimulus. We've seen negative interest rates. And we've seen no ability to really create global economic growth, global inflation around the world. And in fact, you've probably seen the opposite effect. You've seen slower growth in many of the markets. So you're reasonably hopeful, but sentiment could shift and sentiment can become self-reinforcing. Yeah, sentiment can always shift. I'm reasonably hopeful. I think I'm realistic to what some of the issues are. And I think it's going to take some time to get through these issues. And I think the issues are real. The issues of a globalized workforce are real. The issues of a globalized economy are real. 
the ability for companies to issue debt in any currency they want because the rate is cheaper is real. And these facets, I just listed a few of them, these are new to the world of monetary policy. If you go back 20 or 30 years ago, we had much more isolated economies of the world. So when a central bank did something in their borders, it had a more dramatic effect because the marketplace didn't arb out the differences within 10 seconds or 20 seconds. Now, if you do something in your economy, the entire world will know within a millisecond and people will transact on it within a second or two. And we have to realize that that's where we are and we're not going back from that. And that has many very positive attributes to it, but it makes monetary policy much more difficult. Gary, thanks for joining us. Jake, thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on February 3rd, 2016. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.